Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you. David Sarita back with us. First aspiration in life was to become an astronaut. Back in 1968, David and a friend witnessed the UFO with hundreds of other witnesses. After this experience, he grew up as a UFO enthusiast, never living in doubt of the phenomena that has swept the world since the Roswell incident in 1947. He has studied world religions, science, physics, and paranormal psychology for more than 25-plus years. David Serrata on Coast to Coast. David, welcome back. Thanks for having me back, George. I remember the last time I was on, I said that I was going to, because we brought up the, um, we investigated the USS Nimitz case and all the new Navy pilots. Right, right. And I mentioned that I was going to bring up the, Space Shuttle Columbia and how we have proof that it was taken out by a super weapon from above. And uh, so that's what I'd like to go into tonight. By the way, now, fitting for you to be on the night that uh, Chuck Yeager has passed away at the I age of 97. That. You know, I just read that and I read his full biography while I was a skydiver training at Edwards Air Force Base to do my first um, 30,000 foot skydive. And I I'm just in awe of his accomplishments, and it happens on the anniversary of Pearl Harbor, December yeah, 7th. Yeah, absolutely. What, he was it's just a great American. Just after Pearl Harbor, it was only a few months later, coming into the next year in February, was the Battle of 42 over Los Angeles. And That's that is right. where our military shut down the entire city of Los Angeles, and we thought it was Japanese. And there's this UF, there, there are several UFOs just off the coast of Redondo Beach, basically. And we shot 1,400 rounds um, at these craft, and it, it appeared we didn't knock them out of the sky. But according to George C. Marshall documents that I got my hands on, we did shoot one out of the sky, and they were not firing back at us. And that craft was retrieved, taken to. Muroc Field, which is now Edwards Air Force Base. So that marks the beginning, really, of an interstellar or possibly interstellar war. And, you know, Reagan, when he created SDI, Star Wars, Mm -hmm. he gives that legendary speech at the United Nations Assembly where he talks about if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world, and he, he puts it, kind of in a perspective where you don't really know why he's talking about aliens and an alien threat. Yeah, it caught a lot of people by surprise, didn't it? He caught so many people by surprise. And then when, when Trump creates the Space Force, it was looked at as kind of a joke. And, and of course, they made that you know comedy with Steve Carroll on, uh, on Netflix, Space Force, which is like a space farce. But when you see what I'm going to present tonight, there is no question that there is an ET threat, and there's no question the Space Shuttle Columbia, if you look at the photographs on your site that Lex put up, you will see absolute proof that NASA covered up probably the greatest ET offensive move we've ever witnessed. Interesting take. And, uh, and of course... Just had a story before you came on, David, about the former head of Israeli security claiming that the United States and Israel have been dealing with extraterrestrial races very clandestinely because the ETs don't want to go public. 
It's amazing stuff. I know. I just I just read that too, and I I, I was wondering about the authenticity of that statement. I definitely will investigate further into it. Not all so, ETs are at war with us, though, right? Well, you see, if you go, let's go further back before we go to the Columbia incident. My friend Boyd Bushman was a weapons scientist at Lockheed Martin, and he he worked for Lockheed for twenty years. Before that, he worked for McDonnell Douglas. And, you know, I was a, I was a small defense contractor in, in bomb detection and nuclear fusion, and I had incredible access in those years. And, you know, working for Bogdan Castle Maglitz, an MIT, you know, a physicist. Sure. And it, it, Boyd told me stories that we developed the Tesla death ray, which according to FBI documents, the Tesla death ray declassified documents which even named my boss, Bogdan Maglitz. Those, those FBI files named him because he was from Yugoslavia, the same country as Tesla. He was an MIT you know, physicist, nuclear physicist. And we developed a Tesla death ray at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, which is where the Roswell crap was allegedly taken. And Bushman says we used a weapon that resembles the Tesla death ray that took down the Roswell flying saucer. And he was friends with a Navy doctor who was treating a pilot who suffered radiation burns from, you know, using this weapon on the Roswell craft. And, of course, just like the Battle of 42, we're, we're in a post-World War II environment. So we're, we don't know who they are. We don't know if they're the Germans. We don't know if they're the Russians. We don't even know if they're the Japanese. So we're chasing them, and we're using this new beam weapon something that's literally so super fantastic and something that you you can't even imagine we possess today. And we took down the, the flying saucer at Roswell, one of them. Now, was, that, were, was that smart to do that, David? I mean, my God, they had the technology well, we to get here? We did. I know exactly. That's the point. We didn't know who they were because here's the weakest problem in this entire UFO phenomenon is receiving communication from who's in our airspace. Right, right. In the Battle 42, they, they didn't seem to use radio waves to communicate via radio. So we didn't know who was up in the sky above Long Beach. And so we're shooting at them, and there's nobody sending us the message. And, it, and, and before Roswell, you have the Kenneth Arnold sighting um, in June of 1947. Then you have the... Um, United Airlines pilot in Idaho who saw the same craft. Then there were the UFOs right over Portland on the 4th of July, made papers and on July 4th. And then the eight UFOs were reported over what is now Edwards Air Force Base, and then the Roswell incident. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was a hot year. 47 was, uh, was a wild year for these things. And we were chasing them, and we had weaponized our you know, our Air Force with a weapon that's beyond anything we can even imagine today. Now, when you come all and you realize that we've had these weapons, we've been shooting them down for the purpose of crash retrieval. And when we were shooting down for the purpose of crash retrieval, it didn't mean we, we knew they were aliens. It just meant it could have been 
It could have been the Germans, right? It could have been... Could have been the Germans, sure. And, ...and Hitler's whole development of the flying saucers. We didn't know what they were. All we knew, we knew is they were in our airspace, and there was no communication. So why wouldn't they communicate if they were from Earth? Because they didn't want to get shot at. Well, when you come to February 1st, 2003, I was lecturing in Sedona, Arizona that day that the Columbia was coming down on the NASA UFO phenomenon. So as a consequence of your show, in those days, somebody sent me five photographs taken by a British tourist named Peter Goldie, who has since passed away in 2011. And he had his little Nikon Coolpix on a tripod in the San Francisco Bay Area, and he captures five photographs of what NASA tried to trick the entire American public into thinking was a lightning strike, what's called a mega lightning strike or a sprite. And, and, NASA, and, the, and the, really, the only way you can get lightning on a photograph is to keep shooting until it sparks, because you can't plan on it. What you generally do is you either do that or you leave the lens open. And you're constant. That's right. And constantly open until you get a lightning strike. But you can't take two three, four pictures of the same lightning strike. It's impossible, right? And, and his little Nikon Coolpix didn't have a motor drive. So, so what happens is you see in the photograph this incoming comes from above. The shuttle is doing 17,500 miles an hour, and this thing is coming in. It's way too slow to be a lightning strike because lightning travels at 270,000-plus miles per hour. And the shuttle is doing... 17 and a half. So my photographic analysis using a simple overlay ratio technique, this incoming is coming from this mysterious region of our atmosphere called the mesosphere. And the mesosphere we'll talk about later is one of the most understudied levels of our atmosphere where NASA has admitted there are very strange things that go on in that part of the atmosphere. So this thing is coming from above. There are no satellites. We don't have military satellites in the mesosphere because it's, it starts at about 31 miles, and the shuttle is at 39 miles. So this thing is coming from the upper mesosphere. It's corkscrewing. It turns at 90 degrees, which you cannot do at this speed. This thing is coming in 23,000 miles an hour. That's the first calculation I made. Now, with velocity, you can determine everything. Mm -hmm. You can just go on your speed chart, all your different airplanes, all your different missiles, and in the year 2003, the fastest missile alive is still the, the Minuteman. And the Minuteman will peak at 18,000 miles an hour, but it can't turn. Cannot turn. It can't turn at 18,000 miles an hour. This thing turns 90 degrees, wow. knowing it missed the path of the Columbia, and then it accelerates towards 60,000 miles an hour and hits Columbia. Now, he's got five consecutive photographs of this, and you, you can't believe what happens. What happens is that Tammy Jernigan, space shuttle astronaut, isolates his camera, takes all of his photographs, and takes it to the Lawrence Livermore National Lab in the San Francisco Bay Area, she doesn't let anybody see the photos. And she tries to tell the San Francisco Chronicle that this must be an artifact of the guy's camera. 
So years later, I get this email from an MIT physicist named Eric Hermanson. Now, Eric was was an alumni physicist at MIT. And he knew you were investigating these things? He heard me on your show, if you Ah, okay. That's great synchronicity. Eric knew that I had the five photos, and the entire Air Force wanted to see them because Tammy Jernigan wouldn't let him see them. So he writes Sheila Widnall this letter, and he CCs me on the letter, including Hanscom Air Force Base, tons of NASA scientists. There's this huge CC list. And he says, David Sarita, a space enthusiast, has these photographs that were taken by this British tourist, Peter Goldie. And thank God, you know, he's, you know, he's, he's on the other side now. He knows the truth. And, and what happens is she, she looks at my investigation. She looks at all my speed chart analysis of all of our missiles. Our missiles are not really very fast. Most of our tactical missiles are, are peaking at 1500 miles an hour, 2500 miles an hour. They're not, they're not as fast as you, as you would think they are. So this thing, is doing 23,000 miles an hour and going up to 60,000 miles an hour. Wow. Now, you have to understand that this, this is occurring in 2003 of February, and the Nimitz incident happens in November of 2004. So in less than a year later, we have major, major UFO events happening within the U.S. Navy within the space of less than a year in the same region. So now watch what happens. Eric sends me six or seven photographs taken by NASA's own cameras at the Johnson Space Center in Houston. And the Johnson Space Center photos confirm, which you can see up on your site right now, the image that says NASA image is an image at the moment Columbia is getting struck by the incoming coming from above, which is this purple wave coming in. And at the same time, ahead of Columbia, you will see three UFOs. And what's incredible about that is I, I meet this guy, George Moseman in Los Angeles, who, who's a CFO for, for motion picture production companies in L.A., and he happened to be in Dallas that day at his lawyer's office looking through Zeiss binoculars at the Columbia and he sees ahead of the Columbia a gold and a purple UFO, classic saucer shape. But they're these psychedelic colors, right? They're the same UFOs that you see in this confirming NASA image from the Johnson Space Center that was sent to me by MIT. These photographs, George, have never been in any newspapers. They haven't been in any UFO investigation publicly ever. They... They've been in my computer for years, and the reason is because almost everybody I showed them to, including the History Channel, were terrified to show these these photographs to the, to the American public because it's clear that they lied that it wasn't a lightning strike because you can't take five pictures of the same lightning strike. And what's amazing is in his last photo, the 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 original um, point where the incoming corkscrews down from above, the streak line is still there, as if it left a smoke trail or something. Because a lightning strike doesn't leave a smoke trail. So you can't take a picture 20 seconds later of the lightning strike that struck 20 seconds ago. You can't take a picture one second later. Well, David, if so, there's a war, 
if there's a war, why is it happening? Well, see, this is, it gets more and more and more amazing because the war, to me, this is the beginning of the war. The beginning of the war is abductions, taking our children. I mean, who started it? See, this is, this is a, George, this is a great question. Did we start it the moment? Okay, here's what I think happened. Let's go way back. Nikola Tesla, the true father of radio, according to the U.S. Supreme Court, June 21st, 1943 ruling is Tesla, Lodge, and Stone. And Lodge is a mystic. He, he's a very spiritual man. He, 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 radio to him is not just some, some means of human communication. He was deeply mystified by some of the experiments he did in, in radio. Now, Tesla, on Pike's Peak in Colorado, on, sorry, uh, what's it called? Um, Colorado Springs, Pike's Peak, the top of Colorado Springs. He sends out this massive radio broadcast in the late 1800s. And Tesla believes in his lab that he's receiving messages either from Mars or Venus. Wow. Now, what interests me is I calculated the wavelength of his broadcast, and the the frequencies he used were so low compared to what we use today. The wavelength spans right by Roswell, New Mexico. The radius of the wavelength spans right by Roswell. So if he sent out this massive wavelength into space, and Tesla has documentation that he was able to send radio signals and receive them faster than light using a different aspect of, of radio waves. Did the return signal come back? Did the return signal come back and search the entire perimeter of the wavelength? And the the other speculation is did, and I've said this before, and Dan Aykroyd has actually quoted me saying this, because this is my own theory, is when we detonated the first atomic bomb, Trinity, at Trinity Site, New Mexico, in 1945, July, did we open up a time dilation hole hmm. that allowed these craft to come through that vortex, that hole. Interesting. And they only had so much time to... To investigate get, our Earth, and then as the hole was closing, they were trying to leave through the hole, and we shot two of them down, according to Boyd Bushman's data, and uh, and there were eight flying saucers in total. Or, or did the explosion send up a ripple effect that they somehow picked up on, and they went, oh boy, these people are in the ball game now, we've got to go see them. So that's an, that's an interesting idea, George, because from from the, their perspective, if they don't move through regular space and they're in hyperspace and they see the ripple on the other side, they would be immensely curious, right? Oh, absolutely. There's a new a, new player in the game, right? Right. You're on this perfectly clear pond, and all of a sudden a, draw, a rock you know, plunks in the pond and makes a ripple. You're like, who did it? Right. And maybe... You're right. Maybe they saw it because it all seems to start then, right, on either side of Roswell. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.